What happened in Norway on July 22, 2011? Eric Schlosser will be here to talk about his review of Asne Sierstas' new book, One of Us, the story of Anders Breivik and the massacre in Norway. And it's, it's really the worst trauma that Norway has, has experienced since the Second World War. It's the equivalent of their 9-11. How do you write a book about grieving? Megan O'Rourke will join us to talk about Elizabeth Alexander's new memoir, A Light in the World. She talks about one of his friends saying that her husband always made them felt feel like they had all the time in the world. And there is a quality of that in, in the writing. Alexander Alto will share her notes from the publishing world. And Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. She described him as taking his time, aiming and shooting. She said it was a slaughter of young people. Even after the shooting began, witnesses said Mr. Breivik, the shooter, was able to coax young people out of hiding because many thought he was a police officer dressed in uniform. Once they revealed themselves to him, however, the witnesses said he opened fire again and again. That was part of the Times' coverage of the massacre in Norway on July 22, 2011. Eric Schlosser is here with us. He is the author of Fast Food Nation and Command and Control and is working on a book about prisons. This week, he reviews on our cover, One of Us, the story of Anders Breivik and the massacre in Norway by Asna Sierstra. Hi, Eric. Hi. This book is obviously about the events of 2011, um, terrible massacre that took place. To refresh listeners' memory, What happened on that day? Uh, There was an island off the coast of Norway where every year the Social Democratic Party, the Labor Party of Norway, would have a summer camp for future young leaders. An extremist showed up on the island posing as a police officer, having set off a bomb in downtown Oslo uh, in front of the prime minister's office. And this extremist took out his guns and just started massacring uh, teenagers and uh, the staff on the island. And it's it's really the worst trauma that Norway has has experienced since the Second World War. It's the equivalent of their 9-11. Let's go back through um, the events. So the, the killer's name is Anders Bering Breivik. What happened on that morning? He wakes up and he goes first to plants this bomb in Oslo and then... He had been planning uh, for months... Uh, how to strike at what he thought to be this Marxist, cosmopolitan, multicultural state. His views were very much in keeping with the far right of Europe uh, in the moment. At the moment, we can see these these views being held right now in Hungary, uh, in Germany, and and surprisingly, and, and one of the things I talk about in my review is is how Scandinavia has this new racist nationalism. So his views were not unusual. His, his behavior was unusual. He drove into central Oslo uh, with a van packed with explosives, much like the sort of explosives used in the Oklahoma City uh, bombing. And he was operating totally independently in this endeavor? It seems as though he was. Uh, in his manifesto, which he posted online right when he uh, set out to commit these crimes, very long manifesto. He said that he was a member of a new Knights Templar and that there were other uh, members of this organization in other countries ready to strike. And most likely, it it turns out that was purely imaginary Mm -hmm. and that he was operating alone. 
I'm not going to read the quote, but I brought with me a book by Stig Larsson, who was the author of the uh, uh, Girl of the Dragon Tattoo trilogy. And he was very uh, concerned about this sort of far right-wing terrorism in the 1990s. And, and one of the things I was reading one of his essays recently he wrote about was whenever there is an act of neo-Nazi or right-wing terrorism, it's always ascribed to the work of a madman. Mm-hmm. And what that does in, in dismissing it as the work of a madman is to not pay attention to the deeper underlying trends that are very disturbing. One, one of the main issues of the book One of Us is whether Breivik was a lunatic or whether he was a political terrorist. And the author never really comes to a conclusion, which I think was a, a very wise thing on, on her part, and it lets the reader think about these issues. Right. It's a difficult uh, choice to make, obviously, when you're writing a book like this, because there's a pressure, I think, to come up with some kind of answer or point of view. But yeah. she's basically making it clear how much is unclear. And this is a beautiful book. I mean, it's a beautiful book about a terrible, tragic moment. But unlike other uh, similar works of nonfiction, like In Cold Blood and The Executioner's Song, uh, the author here really takes on the weight of these crimes. I think that that Capote and and Norman Mailer were very taken with the murderers that they wrote about. Uh, Capote literally fell in love with one of them, and I think Norman Mailer maybe wanted to be Gary Gilmore. You know, he'd written about this sort of hipster criminal on the on the edge and and in this book the the victims and and their plight play a very large role and so it's it's a it's a complex multi-layered work of nonfiction which is one of the reasons I liked it so much those other two books one would probably put more definitively in the category of true crime literary true crime but it sounds like this book broadens the context and looks I mean the title itself is indicative yeah. of that uh, the phrase one of us was that something that was common in Norway at the time, this this idea that he had been? I think it's something that uh, to this day Norway is is struggling with. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Norway has the People's Party in, in power, in you know, in government right now. The finance minister is from a, an anti-immigrant party. And Scandinavia has prided itself since the end of the Second World War of being tolerant, of being a voice for compassion and peace and in international affairs. So not only to have this sort of crime, but also to have these sort of attitudes, these anti-immigrant, uh, anti-Muslim attitudes embraced by many in the mainstream is, is creating a real crisis of conscience. And, and I would say, you know, the Executioner's Song, uh, Norman Mailer's book, is, is an attempt to go beyond true crime. And, and one of the problems with those books, and I don't want to focus too much on the negativity, is there's a there's a remarkable lack of interest in the victims. And there's mm-hmm. also a quality of, of New York literati going into the heartland and somewhat condescending towards the people who are being written about. Whereas in this book, it's remarkable to me how much empathy she's able to create even for the for the madman or the political terrorist at its center. You certainly don't like him, but you can understand where he came from and the the domestic poor health that led to him being who he is. I wonder if the author's background, uh, Siarsta was a foreign correspondent for many years, may have helped her in that she has you know, been in that situation where she kind of has to look at a society from that outsider perspective, that maybe being both from Norway, but then also being able to pull back gave yeah. her 
a, you know, a different lens through which to view the That's events. interesting. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say I've, I've never read any of her other work. I imagine they were most of it was in Norwegian, but she did write another book. I think she wrote the bookseller of Kabul, which was a big best international bestseller. I've never read her work, but I think what differentiates her from Capote and Mahler is that she's probably seen a lot of violence firsthand. Mm-hmm. And so she has a context for understanding this act of violence, which for many people would seem so outside of their ordinary experience and and so senseless. And she does go into a lot of detail when describing the brutality of the events that occurred that day. It's incredibly powerful. Uh, and there were times when I felt like I needed to put the book down, and yet it's so well structured and well written that I just had to keep reading. And, and I mentioned this in the review. It's it really is a, a tragedy. I mean, it's like being exposed to tragedy, and yet, oddly, there is a kind of catharsis at the end. I mean, it's a powerful book. I want to go back um, to what ended up happening that day because uh, not only to talk about uh, what happened with the victims, but also the reaction of the guards and police who were there that day um, and, and what, what you can draw from that. So he gets up to this, this summer camp, and what happens then? Well, he sets off a bomb in the heart of Oslo, and yet he's able to drive out of you know central Oslo without being stopped by the police. And you know she goes through the levels of disarray and incompetence among the Norwegian security services. You know they had the there had been a witness of him driving up uh, in this uh, van, and someone thought he seemed odd and took down the license plate. There was a security camera that captured him parking the van, and yet they were unable to stop him. They didn't shut down the roads. He gets to the island, and then they know that he's shooting teenagers on the island, and yet they don't have a helicopter to get the security forces there. Security forces arrive, and the dinghy that they're using starts to sink. And in a way, it's a sign that this society was completely unprepared for this sort of violence. And there's something sweet about that, but it's not sweet if it means that dozens of young people are needlessly killed. I mean, the murderer even tried to surrender a couple of times and called the police to surrender. And uh, through the bureaucracy of the security services was unable to surrender and and more people were, were killed. And before I, you know, I'm too condemning of the Norwegian uh, security services, if you read the 9-11 report, commission report, you know, the, the complete chaos and anarchy at the highest levels of the Pentagon and the White House uh, when we came under attack. Right. Uh, the reality of how these things unfold is is very different from the Hollywood version. Yes, the 24-7 hindsight is also. Yeah. But a couple things that I thought um, were especially damning were um, one was that he called twice yeah. in the course of the massacre. What What did he say? Who did he call? He called the police twice. And he got some local operator who may not have known what was going on. He called once, didn't get anybody to come there and arrest him, called again. I think he got disconnected the second time. And and it's very interesting that he made these phone calls because most mass murderers are essentially committing suicide. It's a form of suicide. It's a, it's a particularly horrendous form of suicide in which they're bringing down others with them, but it's a... Like the, it's, origi- the, the recent plane crash. Yeah. It's a subset of the death by cop. The person mm-hmm. is wanting to die. But in, in this case, he wanted to live, and he wanted to go on trial, 
and he wanted his political ideology to be spread by the trial and by the manifesto that he he wrote. One could argue that writing a book like this about him at all is is giving him a notoriety of the kind that he had sought, but I think the author here does a very good job of portraying him as a complex, pitiable, and in many ways pathetic character, far from being the heroic knight Templar mm-hmm. that he saw himself being. I mean, he he had a whole series of pictures taken of himself before the massacre in his favorite outfits that he wanted to be used for publicity photos instead right. of a mugshot. I mean, he was is, he's still alive, a strange, dark human being. One thing that's interesting is that at least over here, the way in which he was characterized was as, you know, right-wing, white nationalist, anti-Islam, anti-multicultural. But a large part of his ideology and motivation was also anti-women. Yeah. And he had a very disturbed, I mean, psychiatrists even talked about when he was a child, profoundly disturbed relationship with his own mother. Uh, and he just opposed feminism and women's rights and and saw, you know, the, the fact uh, that Norway had had their first uh, woman prime minister who was a multiculturalist as, as being part of this assault on traditional European and, in this case, Norwegian uh, society. He was able to go to this island and shoot unarmed teenagers who he saw as the future leaders of this multicultural society. And he set out, apparently, to decapitate this woman, former prime minister. Yeah. And she was speaking on the island that day. And he just got too caught up with his bomb uh, in Oslo. And he got to the island late and he missed her. But his plan was to decapitate her in front of this crowd of teenagers. I'm doing a little bit of what you talked about with the uh, In Cold Blood and um, the Executioner song and sort of trying to focus a bit on the murderer and who he was. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that uh, C.R. Stott does spend time talking about his childhood. You mentioned his relationship with his mother. And you also talked about this manifesto. What else do we know about his life before he went about and committed this crime? It seems as though he was constantly seeking to be included and then being excluded as an outsider. He had difficult relationships with women. Um, Some of his friends thought that he was gay. He was an odd guy who wore makeup and took steroids and had a nose job to appear more Aryan. At one point, he hung out with uh, graffiti artists and was a tagger in Oslo. But again and again, you find him seeking acceptance being rejected. Now there are millions of people who fit that category who don't go on to commit mass murder. But I think his relationship with his mother, his abandonment by his father, he had a, he had a very unhappy and in many ways unhealthy childhood. But to go beyond the personal individual psychology and pathology, he became part of the growing anti-immigrant movement Mm -hmm. in Norway and had ambitions to be a politician in the People's Party there. He online created relationships with all these other anti-immigrant groups and neo-Nazi groups. So one of the things that the book is constantly raising questions about is getting back to the earlier point. Is this an individual madman Mm -hmm. or is he somehow representative of really toxic currents 
in not just Norwegian, but in European society at the moment. Our cover this week is um, three books out of Norway, and it seems like there's some kind of Norwegian moment going on where there's a lot of fascination. One of the stories that the magazine here ran a few weeks ago was about a Norwegian prison, Mm -hmm. um, which you must be aware of, and you're writing a book. Your next book is about prisons. I visited that prison. So, you know, we we, we so often hold up Norway as this uh, enlightened nation in which they are able to handle crime in a way that is perhaps more constructive than our own. I'm curious, you've been to Norway, as you said, you've been to this prison, you've read this book. Any thoughts about, you know, is there something dark that's been kept at bay in Norway, something that's growing? You know, I've spent time in Sweden and Norway, and uh, I love both of those countries. And if you look at the societies that they created after the Second World War in Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, some of the most humane, compassionate uh, societies in the history of mankind. But they were also extremely homogenous societies. And as they began to accept immigrants on a large scale, uh, a lot of those core beliefs began to be challenged. And I think in many ways, the Scandinavian societies have not acquitted themselves well once they became uh, multicultural societies. And, And I think particularly in Sweden and to a lesser degree in Norway, have not confronted the uh, fascism and neo-Nazism and in and Sweden even Nazism that they had during the Second World War. Sweden in particular rewrote its history to, to, to ignore the fact that in many ways they collaborated with the Nazis. So I think these countries have needed to do a better job of confronting some of their past and certainly have to do a better job of of dealing with immigrants and expanding the definition of what it is to be Swedish, what it is to be Norwegian. I come back to Stig Larsson, but that's so much of what the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo trilogy was about. And and he was a crusading investigative journalist who really focused on the rise of the anti-immigrant neo-Nazi movement. And, and his work, in many ways, unfortunately, was was prophetic. And we're now seeing in the mainstream things that he was criticizing on the fringes of Swedish society, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Well, it sounds like Asna Sierra is continuing that investigation. Um, her book, again, is One of Us, The Story of Anders Breivik and the Massacre in Norway. Eric Schlosser, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Eric reviewed One of Us this week on our cover. He is also the author of Fast Food Nation and Command and Control. Alexandra Alter is here with news from the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Pulitzers. Yes. So the Pulitzers came out this week, and I was familiar with the fiction winner, as everyone will be, Anthony Doerr's All the Light We Cannot See, and with the nonfiction winner, Elizabeth Colbert's The Sixth Extinction. But I had never heard of the poetry winner. That's Gregory Pardlow's Digest. And it turns out I'm not the only one. Digest had made Slate's list of overlooked books of 2014. It was well-reviewed, but... You know, it didn't sell an incredible amount of copies. It sold something like 1,500 copies to date. So there were some questions about who this person is, and it turns out he lives in Brooklyn in Bed-Stuy. So I, I gave him a call, and um, he was busy. The 
the day after he won the Pulitzer, he had class. He's still getting his MFA at Columbia. He was taking a class that afternoon with the essayist and poet Philip Lopate. So I sat in on the class. And of course, there were a lot of congratulations going around. It's kind of fun to see what the life of a working poet is like. Of course, he's teaching a lot. He's getting his PhD at CUNY and kind of just sort of scraping by with these academic positions. And when he first wrote Digest, he sent it out to a bunch of publishers in 2010. It's just his second book of poetry. Mm -hmm. And it was rejected by everybody, um, all the major poetry publishers. So So, who's the publisher who can now say, I told you so? So the publisher who can say, I told you so, who um, released it just last fall, is Four Way Books. It's a small independent literary press. They only publish 15 books a year, mostly poetry. He placed it there. You know, now they're printing 5,000 more copies. It looks like it's going to get a really great reception now. You know, he's just got this interesting backstory. His poetry is sort of playful. He riffs on academic language a lot and, you know, produces poems that are sort of fake sociological essays and fake book reviews. But he's also writing a lot about, you know, living in Brooklyn, shopping for groceries with his daughter, how his neighborhood is changing. He's sort of producing these really sort of delightful riffs on gentrification and things like that. But, you know, he had kind of an unconventional path. He, you know, he said he wrote poetry when he was in high school to impress girls. Actually, he said he mostly wrote rap lyrics and things. But he studied to be a lawyer. Um, He came from a working class family in South New Jersey. His father was an air traffic controller and his mother worked for the Yellow Pages. So he never thought of writing as something that he could pursue professionally. It just didn't seem stable enough. So he kind of took breaks from college. He lived in Copenhagen for a while and has actually translated a volume of Danish poetry. He ran a blues and jazz bar for a while that his grandfather, who was a jazz pianist, had started. He made his way back to college and discovered that he wanted to be an English major, fell in love with poetry there and has written and published two volumes. And his next book is actually going to be a collection of essays. He started as a memoir. He's been working on it for years, but it's going to be sort of memoiristic essays about the air traffic controller strike in 1981, which his father was part of and lost his job as a result. And it's, you know, the impact that that had on their family. Let's leave with a bit of poetry by Gregory Pardlow, winner of the Pulitzer Prize. My name's Gregory Pardlow, and I'll be reading my poem, Palling Around. Palling Around. He heard in curtains of sleet cleaving from magnolia leaves, encrypted Aztec frequencies, he said. When the sun god liquors loose each ashen tongue, the planet tattles. We were advised to listen. This he'd grunt to signal his dwindling fuse, and the bartender would show him the door. In his honor, I tune my form to the emanations of this vibrant life. Either someone's dropped a blue coin, and I've picked up the murmur of its ribs, a quarter kiltering beneath the blonde brick arcade of the whispering gallery at Grand Central, or someone's table is ready. Megan O'Rourke joins us now. She is the author of the poetry collections Once and Half-Life and of the memoir The Long Goodbye. This week in the book review, she reviews Elizabeth Alexander's new memoir, The Light of the World. Hi, Megan. Hi, Pamela. On the surface, uh, it seems that you and Elizabeth Alexander have certain things in common. Um, You both are poets and you both wrote what 
you loosely refer to in the um, review as grief memoirs. What is a grief memoir? I think of grief memoir as a category of memoir that um, has increasingly been published over the past, let's say, 10 years, which really charts the course of, of one person mourning another, whether a father or a husband, as in the case of Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking, and in the case, of course, of Elizabeth Alexander's book, um, or a mother, in the case of my book, The Long Goodbye. So, you know, they're books that are trying to animate something of what it is like to be a mourner today. Um, and the question that is, of course, interesting is, why is there this crop of books? What, where did they come from? What, what need did they arise from? And I really think, as I say in the review, that one of the reasons we see all these books arriving in, in bookstores and on bookshelves is that... Um, you know, it's really hard to be a mourner in America today. We don't have mourning rituals. We don't have a, a kind of um, a way of signaling our private grief to the to the outer world. And, we, and America has a real kind of muscle through it mentality that means that grieving is a very strange experience, like kind of being on an island while everyone is rushing around you and you're supposed to be in that, that thick of that traffic, but you're not. It does seem like people don't know what's okay, um, what's permissible to talk about, to feel in the wake of death. And I think of, when I think of grief memoirs, I think of those books, but also others that are so radically different from one another. Wave by Sonali Dramaniagala, which was about the death of the author's parents, husband, and children simultaneously from the um, tsunami. And she wrote a lot in that memoir about her rage and anger and, and her inability to, quote unquote, get over it. And at the time, it seemed like those were emotions that hadn't been okay to acknowledge or she was made to feel like it wasn't okay. Yeah, that's an amazing book. Um, and that quality of rage is, is really part of it. And of course, reading it, one completely understands. I mean, her entire family, you know, disappeared in this incredibly horrible event. And she herself was, you know, part of it. Listening to you say that makes me think, you know, of course, one of the other reasons I think we have these memoirs is that they be the, the act of writing them becomes a way of, of memorializing, right, and of kind of engaging in your own mourning ritual. So I think that precisely because we have this culture where it's kind of hard to know how to grieve, it's hard mm -hmm. for other people to know how to interact with us, and it's hard for us, actually, to know what are we supposed to be doing as grievers, you know, how do we integrate this loss into our life, you know, these kind of busy, fractured, you know, quote-unquote, endlessly connected lives. And I think that that space of sitting down and writing and reflecting and memorializing actually becomes a really crucial act just for the writer, you know, whether or not that book were ever to be published, that the act of writing is itself kind of an important thing. And I very much had that sense in Alexander's book, that this was a way for her to, to mourn and to deal with her loss. To me, you know, if if Wave sort of allowed for space for the writer to express that that kind of anger and, and confusion and outrage, and on the other end of the spectrum, can't we talk about something more pleasant? Ross Chas' book was about sort of finding the the humor and the and the pathos. What would you describe as as the sort of driving emotion behind Alexander's book? For me, there was really this sense of tenderness and appreciation. You know, a lot of the book is about food and nourishment. You know, her husband was a, a cook, a really wonderful cook, and an artist. And there is this sense in the book of incredible focus on the small pleasures of everyday life. And by small, I don't mean um, unimportant, mm -hmm. but, you know, the act of cooking a meal and sharing it, the, the garden that one might have going to... Uh, drinking a, you know, kind of elaborate coffee ritual that they have together, the house they built together, watching a film. So I think that there's a certain amount of tenderness in the remembering of all that and a kind of 
celebration of the of the dailiness of life, mm-hmm. you know. And there's a wonderful quote, I won't get it quite right, but I, she talks about one of his friends saying that her husband always made them felt feel like they had all the time in the world. And there is a quality of that in, in the writing, you know, that there's a sense of this languorous days spent kind of courting and then spent having children and just kind of so much of the book is just about the pleasures of the mundane mm-hmm. and um, the recuperative pleasures of the mundane. And, and so that tenderness is really what comes through for me. It sounds like a lot of it is about caregiving and sort of caretaking and tending and feeding of a garden and of a person and of a marriage and of a house. Yeah, but as a kind of gift, right? Mm-hmm. Not as a duty or an obligation, but just as something freely given that this is this is what one wants to do, right? That that he loved to cook and make meals for her and she, she loved to eat them, right? Or they love to talk or, you know, there's a great moment where... She's been with the children, and there's a Kabbalah poetry reading. He says, you go, I will take care of the children, right? And there's a sense of a kind of ebullience of, you know, a kind of freely given love. And that very much comes through in the book. Alexander, of course, is a poet. And I think many people know her from her poem, Praise Song for the Day, which she read at Obama's 2009 inauguration. Does the book itself come across as poetic? Do you see her, is her use of language poetic in nature in this book? Yeah, in places it definitely does. I mean, I think one of the ways maybe it's poetic is that she's she lets it be kind of fractured and recurrent and repetitive in, in ways that grief itself is, um, you know, which may trouble some readers. Some readers might want a more kind of put together, relentlessly driving forward book. This has a feeling of almost a notebook that might have been kept in the in the year after, um, although it is, of course, carefully crafted. But yes, one does feel the, I think the sensuality is very much a poet's sensuality or sensualism, you know, kind of real, very much interested in sensory experience, what it felt like, what mourning feels like. It seems like she also, that comes across in the description of her husband and in their relationship. This just seemed like an incredible love affair. Um, who was her husband and what kind of relationship did they have? So he was um, a chef. Uh, he he actually um, co-owned a restaurant I used to go to in college called Cafe Adulis. He was from Eritrea. And he, and I think his brother co-owned the restaurant. And he also became an artist around the time, or maybe even before they got married, and so would make paintings. And he just seemed like a very generous person, um, a person very dedicated to enjoying life, you know, again, in, in moment by moment, not a kind of stressed, goal-oriented person, but someone who wanted to inhabit the day, as it were. And she describes him coming home, whistling and saying, home, sweet home. So he seemed like just a very loving and generous guy. You know, it's, it's his, he wore, he liked to wear color, right? He liked to um, enjoy himself and have big dinners and, and so on. And then a friend describes their life together as being like a foreign film. You know, there's always guests staying and wonderful smells emanating from the kitchen and a kind of brightness and liveliness. The memoir has been has come under fire at times for being kind of therapeutic in nature, right? Telling a story of something bad that happens and the overcoming of it. And I would say what's interesting to me, too, about the grief memoir in general, and of course there are exceptions to this, is that they really seem sort of anti-therapeutic, though you might expect them to be the opposite, right? That none of these writers are really interested in the, like, how I got over it part. All of these books, and, and Alexander's definitely kind of against the instrumentalization of grief and the kind of idea that we have to get to the end of it. You know, right, that it's something much, that you're supposed to work through. Exactly, and much more about, so these books are not, you know, you might expect that they would be about like, oh, I went through this terrible thing and then I got better. And they're really, they're really not that, and her book really isn't that. Although it does 
show how it changes over time and how, you know, there were months where she couldn't read or write. But, you know, she does, of course, end up writing again. She does, of course, end up reading, but she watches their son, her, their sons grow taller than her husband ever was. But, you know, it's it's never meant to be, oh, you know, I got over it. It's mm-hmm. more, this is what it's like to live with loss. And loss never goes away, actually, you know. On that eternal note, we'll end. Uh, the book again is The Light of the World by Elizabeth Alexander. Megan O'Rourke, the author of the poetry collections Once and a Half-Life and the memoir The Long Goodbye, reviews it for us this week in the book review. Megan, thank you so much again. Thanks for having me. Greg Coles has bestseller news for us. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. Looks like there's lots of action this week. Yeah, most of it's on the nonfiction side of things. There are, though, three new books on the hardcover fiction uh, list. Starting down at number 13, Elizabeth Berg has written a historical novel um, about George Sand, the uh, French novelist from the 19th century. So it's a a book that really looks at Paris of the 19th century with a a parade of famous names, uh, all of George Sand. George Sand, of course, was actually a woman. Aurora Dupin, I think her real name was. She slept with and, and hung around with Chopin and Flaubert and Liszt and, and you know, the, the names go on and on. Um, so this is a historical novel and a literary novel. Then at number four, Lisa Scottoline has a new thriller called Every 15 Minutes. And at number two, Nora Roberts is back on the list with a book called The Liar. Um, she's been on the list already this year, under her alter ego, J.D. Robb, uh, in March, she had a book from the Death series. And she was on last October also as J.D. Robb. But it's uh, been about a year since there was a Nora Roberts book on the list. And that seems to be her rhythm these days. She, Two J.D. Robbs and one Nora Roberts each year. She gets to be someone else for two-thirds of the time. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of statistics, that makes three new women on the list for 50-50 women and men on the fiction side of the bestseller That's list this right. week. And nonfiction? Uh, on nonfiction, there are five new titles, starting down at number 16, Christopher McDougall, who is a contributing editor at, to Outside Magazine and the author of a um, book called Born to Run some years back that was also a bestseller, has a book called Natural Born Heroes, uh, where he travels around the world. Uh, it started out with a trip to Crete, where he's basically looking at people whose physical training, their endurance, their strength, um, and their their characters have um, situated them to rise to heroic occasions um, when it's called for. And so in doing that, he's it's also kind of an inspirational guide to achieving fitness yourself and, and uh, to ask how you might put yourself in position to become a hero. Then at number 15, the actress Kate Mulgrew, who most recently uh, has been a star of Orange is the New Black, but she's also famous as Captain Janeway on Star Trek Voyager. Um, and she uh, had a long-running role back on the soap opera Ryan's Hope, has a memoir called Born with Teeth. It's partly a, a memoir of her acting career. She studied with Stella Adler back in the day. But it's also um, kind of a moving story. Uh, she gave up a daughter for adoption early in her career when she was just starting out and never really got over that. And it's uh, kind of about how she tracked her down later in life. 
Then at number 10, Koki Roberts, the political correspondent for ABC News and NPR, has a book called Capital Dames. This is her third bestseller, um, looking back at kind of women behind the scenes in Washington. Um, she, she looked uh, in two earlier books back at the colonial era. Now in Capital Dames, she's looking at the Civil War era, so Mary Todd Lincoln and, and various other powerful women in Washington. That's Capital Dames, new at number 10. Uh, then up at number three, the former Treasury Secretary Henry M. Paulson Jr., uh, let's just call him Hank, uh, has a book called Dealing with China. Hank Paulson, of course, was also uh, the former head of Goldman Sachs. And in that role, he made a very concerted effort to reach out to China over the course of a couple of decades. Uh, he got to know leaders there. He um, really advocated trade between America and China. And so now he's looking at the nature of that relationship and also looking at some of the risks uh, facing China ahead um, where they may be on the brink of a financial crisis like the one that we came through ourselves in 2008. But it'll all be okay because at number one, we have a book to make us all feel better and be better people. Yeah, um, it is uh, kind of a, a natural companion to Natural Born Heroes down at number 16. At number one, it's The Road to Character by uh, the New York Times' own David Brooks, the op-ed columnist. This book expands on some of the things that he's been looking at recently in his columns, uh, which is sort of you know how we can be better people, what virtues uh, really matter, and uh, what it takes to acquire those virtues, um, overcoming hardships. There's something of the graduation speech to this book. It's, it's kind of asking what values really matter. Um, he, he calls it the eulogy virtues as opposed to the resume virtues. And wouldn't life be wonderful if all we had to do is read one book to become better people? Thanks, Greg. <laughs> Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.